You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the David Schwimmer of the podcasting landscape. And welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Hi there, my name is Sean Engel, and like always, I'm here to cover the Green Lantern comics. One's featuring Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, my two favorite Green Lanterns. Unfortunately, not featuring Guy Gardner again at all. What we are featuring this time is another Green Lantern annual, this time Green Lantern annual number 7, which coincidentally is a part of the Ghost Crossover, an annual event that happened in 1998 that dealt with, well, beings coming back from the dead. Ironically, it also involves a certain entity that would eventually cause some ruckus in the uh, 2000s with uh, beings coming back from the dead. Kind of ironic, I would think. Probably not, though. Plus, we're also going to be dealing with another spirit, this time in the form of the Spectre, Hal Jordan, who's come to talk a little bit with Kyle Rayner in Green Lantern number 119. Yes, Ghosts Abound in this episode of Just One of the Guys. You would have think that I would have planned it out, but actually I, I didn't. It's just dumb luck again. But we'll be taking a look at both that, or both those issues, as well as uh, some email that I got in from Mr. Luke Chacanetti, as well as playing a few podcast promos, which I love doing. So, as soon as we get done with all of that, we'll be getting on to episode... Uh, episode... Issue number 119 of Green Lantern. So, stay tuned after this break. Hello, ladies. Listen to your man. Now listen to me. Now listen to your man. Now listen to me. Sadly, he isn't me. But if he stopped downloading lame-ass podcasts and switched to Two True Freaks, he could learn to sound like me. Look down. Back up. Where are you? You're on the Enterprise with the man your man could sound like. What's in your hand? Back at me. I have it. It's a long box filled with comics that you love. Look again. The comics are now episodes. Anything is possible when your man listens to two true freaks and not lay masses. I'm on a tauntaun. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. 
This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Short Box Showcase. And we're back. And before we get into coverage of the comics, I'd like to do what I usually do at this time. Read some wonderful emails from some wonderful people who write emails. Again, I you would think after like 119 episodes I'd get this down. But anyway, it's email time. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and this time the email comes from my good friend, Mr. Luke Giaconetti, host of Earth Destruction Directive over at the Two True Freaks website, a show about Daikaiju, which I can only assume is the translation from... Japanese of giant monsters. He covers Godzilla, Gamera, Rodan, King Ghidorah. He also does shows on, uh, what, Super Sentai type characters like uh, Kamen Rider and Ultraman. He's been doing a lot of stuff. That's been fun. If you're not checking out Earth Destruction Directive, you should be because, uh, especially with the number of movies that have come out in the recent years, like Pacific Rim and the new Godzilla movie, these Daikaiju thing are really hot. And Luke knows his stuff. He is he is incredibly knowledgeable about it, and the show is just a fun listen. Go check it out. Anyway, Luke writes in with the title of his email called The Darkness Falls, which I would hope means something about that band falling down a flight of steps and violently injuring themselves, but that's neither here nor there. The email begins, Sean, I'm a little behind on the show, but getting caught up as best as I can. No problem, Luke. I'm glad that you're still listening. Between Godzilla and work and more Godzilla, things have been hectic in my house. Now then, Eclipso doesn't suck. Okay, then. This'll be interesting. Well, the story sucks a bit, he says, but as a character, Eclipso gets better. All I can hear is, you know, John Cleese said, I got better. Maybe Eclipso did. As a Silver Age character, Luke says, he's pretty goofball, but his later gimmick of being a force of corruption through his black diamond is, is great as far as I'm concerned. Eventually, we learn about his backstory, about being God's vengeance before the Spectre became the hand of the Lord's retribution. I have a 99% complete run of the Eclipso's a solo 90s title, missing one issue, dang it, sitting, in, uh, sitting at my nightstand, waiting for me to read. At some point, I'll keep you updated. As I know, you must be waiting with bated breath to hear more about Eclipso. Oh, yes, Luke, please, please, if you would be more than willing to read Eclipso and let me know what's going on with the character rather than me having to do it, I'd so much appreciate that. Anyway, Luke continues saying, as far as the Charlotte Hornets, you're both right and wrong, which is something that I hear quite frequently. The old Charlotte Hornets moved to New Orleans following um, following the falling out between owner George Shin and the Queen City in 2004. The NBA, I'm sorry, the NBA then almost immediately gave Charlotte a new franchise, the Charlotte Bobcats. They began to play in 2004. In 2013, the Hornets' new owners changed the name of the team to the New Orleans Pelicans, and thus the Hornets' name reverted to the NBA. The Bobcats minor majority owner Michael Jordan petitioned the league to change the name of the Bobcats to the Hornets, and the petition was granted. So the Charlotte Hornets will rejoin the NBA next season, complete with their old school and incredibly 90s teal and purple colors. Wow, yeah, that is very 90s. Luke finishes up saying, keep up the good work, Luke. Well, thank you for that information. You know, I 
I knew that when New Orleans, when Katrina hit, Oklahoma City adopted the New Orleans Hornets and allowed them to play at the what was then the Ford Center is now the uh, I think uh, the Chesapeake Center where the Thunder play. So that was one of the things that kind of showed that Oklahoma City could be a town that would support a major league basketball team. Oklahoma City is a pretty good sized city. And the fact that it didn't have any major team, whether it be NBA, uh, Major League Baseball, or NFL, was just kind of disappointing. So the fact that we were able to take on the New Orleans Hornets and host them here led to us being recognized as a city that could support an, a major major sports franchise. You know, Not that I'm all that interested in sports. I mean, it's just a pass, passing fancy for me. I like watching the Thunder play, but I'm not all jonesed up about it. As a uh, time of this recording, uh, the Thunder unfortunately just lost the Western Conference Finals to the uh, San Antonio Spurs. So hopefully the Spurs will go on to uh, beat the Miami Heat because LeBron James, he can, he's the, in my opinion, he's the Kanye West of basketball, but that's just my opinion. But uh, yeah, thanks for the email, Luke. Uh, if you'd like to write in, everyone, please do at just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. I will read your email on the next show. But that does it for the email bag. Let's close that up and move on into coverage of Green Lantern number 119. Green Lantern 119 was covered dated December 1999 and released on October 6, 1999. Thanks to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics for this information. Cover price was $1.99 US and $3.25 Canada, and the title was Spectre of the Past. The writer was Ron Mars, penciler was Daryl Banks, inker this time out was Cam Smith, letterer was Chrissy Leopolis, colors and separations were by Rob Schwager, assistant editors were Harvey Richards and L.A. Williams, and the editors were Kevin Dooley, Bob Shrek, and Mike Carlin. Fearing for his life, Green Lantern Kyle Rayner hides behind a construct shield and screams, Don't kill me! Surprisingly enough, the person Kyle is defending himself from isn't a flame-shooting firestorm knockoff or a Zanshian lantern hunter, but scorned girlfriend Chinny Lynn Hayden, who's tossing whatever isn't nailed down at our Emerald Hero. Kyle begs Jenny to hear him out, but after a bit of calming down, Jenny stops slinging vases at him and asks point-blank if he feels that there is nothing left emotionally between him and Donna. Sheepishly, Kyle says no, and that pretty much ends the discussion. Saying that she's not here to be the second choice for Kyle, Jenny packs up her belongings, kisses Kyle on the cheek, and leaves the apartment. Possibly forever. Cut to Radu's coffee shop, where Kyle is busy drinking his sorrows away in a far more caffeinated way than one would expect. Filling his cup again, Radu tells Kyle that he can understand his problems with women, as even he wasn't able to completely understand his own wife. Kyle is shocked by the revelation that his landlord was once married, but Radu says that it was a long time ago. Kyle also apologizes for dumping his overzealous agent Simone on him at the gallery showing, but Radu says that he doesn't need to apologize, as he was able to ride the freak train with her all night long. Unnerved that even his landlord is having better luck with the opposite sex, Kyle gets one more thing to mess up his morning. The arrival of Hal Jordan at the coffee shop. Hal is glad that Kyle remembers what happened in the Day of Judgment storyline, 
because most people aren't able to remember him due to him being bonded to the Spectre. Saying that he feels uncomfortable about his new quote-unquote life that he's having with me, Hal takes Kyle on a series of journeys to show him just what he means. Their first stop is at Ferris Aircraft, where Hal and Kyle see a worrying Carol Ferris talking to Tom... Kalamaku about the problems she's been having with the business. The duo pop out of the ethereal dimension where they've been in to have Hal remove the star sapphire gem from Carol, telling her that no one held her responsible for what Sapphire did but herself. The Spectre contains the essence of star sapphire in the gem and hands it to Carol, allowing her to destroy it herself, ridding her of her connection to the entity. And with that, Carol Ferris has an epiphany. Maybe things aren't so bleak after all. Cal jokingly asks if Hal can work that kind of fix with his relationship, but Hal says that his job is far grimmer than that. The two return to Cal's apartment, and Hal says his goodbyes, telling Cal that he probably won't be seeing much more of him. Meanwhile, as Radu closes the coffee shop downstairs, an elderly Nick Fury slash Punisher assassin knockoff looks on at the Ukrainian entrepreneur, clutching his rifle and muttering, Soon. Again, we get another issue where Green Lantern really doesn't have all that much ring-slinging to do. In fact, aside from creating his costume and the shield at the beginning of the book, Cal doesn't really do much of anything with his ring. And personally, I don't care. This is more character-based storytelling that's advancing not only our main heroes, Kyle, Jenny, and to a lesser extent here, Hal, Tom, and Carol, but also our secondary characters of Radu and Simone. And I totally love it. Michael and Jeffrey over at From Crisis to Crisis are always touting the richness of the stories in the Superman books because of their secondary characters. Bibbo, anyone? And Mars is doing a fantastic job of bringing the same feel to these supporting characters over in this book. I'm just completely loving it. And I'm also loving the artwork here. The The addition of Cam Smith to the book has really... It's improved the art, in my opinion. Again, I hate coming back to this, but I just don't think Terry Austin and Daryl Banks were a good mix. Cam Smith has a lot of the feel of Terry Austin. His inks can be kind of thick at times, but it looks a lot better. They seem to gel a lot better. And that's definitely seen on the cover here, which is a very moody cover, uh, having Hal as the specter holding Kyle in the palm of his hands with everything looking really diminished and gray. In fact, the only light on the on the cover seems to be coming from the image of the sort of burning circle that's on the specter's chest. It's kind of interesting that Hal has taken or has sort of kept the the symbol of the Green Lantern as his chest emblem on the specter yet has removed the lantern symbol. It's still the circular thing, but there's that sort of green fire emanating from it. It's it's a nice look here and this is a really good if not very moody looking cover. Page one, as I said earlier, Cam Smith has taken over as inker from Terry Austin. And like I said, he actually does a better job, in my opinion, than Austin did. The thickness is still there in some parts, but I tend to like it a lot more. 
Sadly, though, even though it looked like he would be the permanent eager for the book, in fact, they introduce him as, in the Indicia, they say, welcome aboard, Cam Smith, Inker, so you get the kind of idea that he's going to be there. Unfortunately, he was gone within four issues. Plus, I'm not certain why there's a large number of editors. I know there was Bob Shrek and Mark Carlin also came on to do editing on the book, but perhaps that's because eventually Hal would get his own title as the Spectre himself. So that could be why there was many hands on this one book. Page two, panel four, I, I love this. Kyle makes a sports reference saying that Jenny doesn't need to throw all the stuff at him like Sandy Koufax. And when Jenny replies that Koufax was a lefty, Kyle completely doesn't get it. It's one of those moments when someone makes a reference that they aren't 100% certain about and get called out on it. Pretty much like on every show that I do. You know, I'll make a reference to something in comic books that I think I've got a passing knowledge of, and inevitably I will be pretty much wrong on it. And it's a great point to. Kyle's character of knowing something about this and trying to work it into his conversation, but not knowing 100% what's going on with it and getting called out when he doesn't. I, I just think that's a, it's a nice little story element there. Pages three and four, we get a lot of dialogue from Jenny telling Kyle how he completely screwed up. And I've got to say, Jenny is absolutely right here. Kyle completely botched up things with her, and Jenny is right for leaving. Again, like I said before in the past issue, or the past episode, this feels a lot like what you'd be watching on an episode of Friends, which isn't a bad thing to draw from, especially since the 90s era was pretty much dominated by those characters from Friends. So it totally works in this time period in this book. Page 5, panel 4, we get more advancement of the secondary characters here as we learn that Radu, the coffee shop owner and Kyle's landlord, was previously married and maybe it didn't really work out as well. So I like the fact, again, that we're not just focusing on the main heroes in this book. There are secondary characters that build to this mythology and enhance it a lot. And the fact that we're focusing a little bit every episode or so on one of these secondary characters really makes me enjoy this book. And it's really one of the reasons why I love this era of comic books. Plus on the next page, page six, panel two, we get the idea that Radu and Simone kind of uh, hooked up from that little meeting that they had at Kyle's gallery showing. And I love the comment that uh, the shocked Kyle gets from Radu after he, after Kyle says, basically, I didn't know that you two were, you know, doing anything. Radu says, what you think hot coffee is all I can make. So <laughs> yeah, he, he made the beast with two backs. If you know what I'm saying. Plus, I think it's kind of interesting that hot coffee. And I think we talked about this uh, a few episodes back with uh, Michael Bradley, in the video game, we were talking about, I think we were talking about GTA, the video game, GTA 2. And we talked about the mod in GTA 4 or GTA 4 San Andreas, where there was a mod where you could engage in certain activities with a woman of the night in the game. And that mod was called Hot Coffee. So 
I wonder if it's a coincidence that uh, that mod and Radu claiming that he knows how to make something more than just hot coffee are kind of related. I don't think that they'd be stealing from this comic, but it's it'd be interesting if they were. Then on page seven, we get the reveal once again of Hal Jordan coming into the book, and this again is Ron Mars doing his best to try and put a cap on the character of Hal Jordan in the Green Lantern comics. He has kept trying again and again to say, Hal is gone from Green Lantern, and this is another attempt at him doing it. And the one thing I like about this, Hal doesn't look grim. Banks does a great job here at drawing the character and drawing him smiling. I mean, you don't understand for me how much that goes into selling the character. In comics, it doesn't seem like anyone seems to smile anymore unless it's in a sort of malicious way. And it completely sells the character of Hal for me, despite the fact that Hal is having to be the Spectre, this judgmental person who has to do horrible things and be essentially God's hand of vengeance. To see Hal in this very, in his very traditional outfit, the leather jacket, the leather flight jacket, just sitting down and smiling at Kyle, just, it, it, it makes me happy. And that's something I don't get on comics too often, and I'm glad to get it here. Moving on in the book, Kyle's metatextual commentary on page 13 about people seeing two heroes at Ferris the aircraft and how he hates phasing through malls, phasing through walls is kind of mildly annoying. But I kind of have to take it as this is Howl's story, and Kyle's just really along for the ride. So Kyle's there to be sort of the... Bud Abbott to the Lou Costello of Hal, if that makes any sense. Paul Spataro will probably get that reference. And now Paul Spataro's going to hate me even more. It's, I'm used to it. Anyhow, we move on now to pages 16 through 19. And this could be just a big Oprah slash Dr. Phil moment. But Mars takes the idea that it was Carol's guilt over being Star Sapphire that was holding her back and by her overcoming that guilt that she'll be able to succeed, and makes it work in a manner that doesn't feel all namby-pamby and touchy-feely. It's really good writing here from Mars, and it's good art depicting Hal as the Spectre, essentially taking the Star Sapphire gem that was part of Carol, and having her, in essence, destroy it. Essentially freeing her from the idea that her past life has been holding her back. It's, like I said, it's a very touchy-feely kind of Oprah-type thing that could have been handled really poorly by a lesser writer, but it's done really well by Mars in this book. But that finishes pretty much everything up except for the final page where we see Radu closing up shop and from across the street some elderly man with a Nick Fury, you know, classic Nick Fury patch over his eye and holding a sniper rifle, is targeting Radu, and we have no idea why. Again, it's more seeding for the secondary characters in this book, it's not dealing specifically with Kyle, and it's just really enjoying. It gives the book a much richer and much more nuanced feel than just 
the Green Lanterns having to go through space and fight big bads. Epic battles are nice. Sometimes, in fact, I would say most times, little quiet stories like this are interesting as well. But that does it for the comic proper. We'll go ahead now and take a look at some of the very 90s ads in here. Starting off again with the front inside cover, an ad for the L2 Levi's jeans with a very 90s couple looking like they're about to do some dance moves in their very ultra-hip Levi's jeans. Okay, I don't get it because I'm not cool. Then a few pages in, we get an ad for Gauntlet Legends, which I guess is... It's not really the... Well, if you remember the game of Gauntlet, it was pretty much a top-down game where you wandered through a maze and you could play four different characters. I think an elf, a magician, a Valkyrie, and a warrior. And it's got those same characters here, but it's more of a updated 3D version of it. It's, I want to say, kind of a first-person shooter type version of it. But it's for the Nintendo 64 and the PlayStation 1, huh? I vaguely remember this game. I don't think I ever played it, though. I, when I had my Nintendo 64, it was past time of these games coming out, so I might not have picked it up as a rental, so there you go. But I love playing Gauntlet in the uh, arcades. Unfortunately, it would eat quarters like crazy, because obviously Elf needed food badly. Then the next page is an advertisement for uh, the Partnership for Drug-Free America and the Office of National Drug Control Policy. It's a Scantron sheet with uh, the things ticked out in the on the Scantron that basically spells out, Life is hard. And then it says, why make it harder with drugs? Because drugs are bad. They, uh, they make you fail Scantron tests, I, I guess, is what they're trying to get across here. Then a few more pages in, we got They Were the Heroes of Tomorrow, Full of Dreams and Ideals, United to Protect a Near-Utopian Galaxy. Then the Blight came. It's legions of it's the Legion of Superheroes, Legion of the Damned, a four-part epic by Dan Emnett, Andy Lanning, and Oliver Copiel, uh, appearing in Legion of Superheroes 122 through 123, and Legionnaires 70 and 79 and 80. So, uh, yeah... I don't know all that much about this version of Legion, and it doesn't look like any specific Legionnaires that I know of, so... Yeah, Legion of Superheroes in the late 90s. Anyone? The middle of the comic sports a two-page ad for the PlayStation game Omega Boost, which shows a, uh, well, a jet-packed uh, astronaut basically flying around in space. It's one of the NASA astronauts, and the uh, commentary beside the astronaut is boring, and it says, Introducing Omega Boost. Why go to all the trouble of being weightless if you can't blow up a bunch of space crap? So I'm guessing the game was you zipping around in space, blowing up space stuff. So Never played it. No idea. I, I'm, that's... that's becoming a running theme with me in video games in the 90s. Uh, sad. The next ad is that uh, ad for Tostino's Pizzas with the really wild-looking 90s sports football player guy. Uh, that's less said about that, the better. 
But then we have another uh, house ad for uh, the Son of Superman Elseworlds novel by Howard Chaikin, David Tishman, J.H. Williams III, and Mick Gray. Never read this. Hopefully Michael and Jeffrey will be getting to cover it uh, eventually when they cross paths with this on From Christ to Crisis. We get another ad for the DC Universe role-playing game, Fight Crime, Crush Evil, Live the Adventure, from West End Games and Yeti, I guess. Maybe that's the uh, website. I have no idea. Hopefully uh, Shaq will be doing another DC role-playing game podcast very soon, and he can talk more about this. And the, the next page is an advertisement for Batman War on Crime, which was essentially a oversized or treasury edition comic book written by Paul Dini with art by uh, Alex Ross. I remember at the time they put out three of these, maybe more. I know they had the Wonder Woman one, the Batman, the War on Crime, and Superman, Peace on Earth. And if you like Alex Ross's art, they were kind of nice. It worked well in the oversized edition. Paul Dini was a good writer. I pretty certain that I have the Superman Peace on Earth one. It was an idea of Clark going around to various places trying to do, well, do good things on Christmas Eve. And unfortunately, having a lot of things fail because, well, humanity wasn't ready for it. I've heard a lot of people talk about the story, and I think opinions are varied on whether it works or not, but Alex Ross's artwork is... It's eye-catching, I'll give it that. So, maybe this is a better read than the Superman one. The back inside cover is another ad for the Sony mini-disc. Trying to sell the heck out of those, Sony. Yeah, doesn't really work. You know, CDRs will come out next, and then MP3 players will be the thing. So, sorry, Sony. Just didn't work out for you. And the back outside cover is an advertisement for the Sega Dreamcast Sonic Adventure, and it says, Sonic has a new light speed dash. Too bad your lame-ass reflexes are the same. And it's got sort of a film strip type thing on the side, which shows Sonic running really fast, which is kind of what he does in all of his games. The Dreamcast, I think, was, the, well, I'm pretty certain it was the last actual video game system that Sega came out with, and... As far as I know, it was probably better than the PlayStation 3, or not the PlayStation 3, the original PlayStation, but just didn't have the market share and didn't have the, didn't really have all the, uh, I guess the hype behind it that the PlayStation did. So, sad, because Sega was one of the big guns back when I was actually playing video games back in the uh, early 90s, so sad to see how the uh, Titans have fallen, I guess. But that does it for this comic. I'm going to go ahead and take a little break, get something to drink, and as soon as I get back, I will go ahead and regale you with my tale of reading Green Lantern Annual number 7. This book is to be neither an accusation nor a confession, and least of all, an adventure. For death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will try simply to tell of a generation of men who, even though they may have escaped shells, were destroyed by the war. This July 28th, In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Nom, presents All Quiet 
on the Western Front. I'm Tom Panneries, and to commemorate the centennial of the First World War, I will be dedicating a special episode to Eric Maria Remarque's all-time classic war novel. Along with the look at the novel, I will discuss two film adaptations, and then take a quick glance at poetry and songs of the war to end all wars. That's this July 28th at incountry.podomatic.com. I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am back. You need to take the trash out. Hey, I'm trying to make a trailer for a podcast. Oh, you mean Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast? Why, yes, that is what I mean. The show where you and I discuss all things geeky. Comics, TV, movies, books, you name it. Well, are you going to tell them that you can find the show at www.supermatescomic.blogspot.com? Well, I think you kind of already did. And that new shows will be posted bi-weekly, every two weeks? I was, but you just kind of did that too. Well, see, now you can go take out the trash. Great. So join us, Cindy. And Chris. Franklin, for the Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast, at supermatescomic.blogspot.com. And we are back, so let's go ahead and jump right into Green Lantern Annual Number 7. This one had a cover date of 1998 and was released on August 5th, 1998. Ironically, well, not ironically, but coincidentally, that was four years after it got married, so... Yeah, that's kind of cool. The cover price was $2.95 in the U.S. and $4.25 in Canada, and the title was, surprisingly, Ghosts. The writer was Steve Vance, the penciler was Ron Lim, inkers were Doug Hazelwood and Kim DeMolder, colorist was Jason Wright, the letterer was Janice Chang, assistant editor was Chuck Kim, and the editor was Kevin Dooley. Green Lantern Kyle Rayner flies out over the coast of California as the clouds in the background coalesce into an image of him making out with his now-dead girlfriend, Alex DeWitt. Uncomfortable. Which, yeah, it's kind of creepy. Anyhow, Kyle has some internal monologue about his career up to now as he rescues the family from a crash with an overturned tanker truck. But just as Kyle is pulling an unconscious girl from the wreckage, the tanker explodes, blowing Kyle and the family to pieces. But, surprisingly, that doesn't happen, as Kyle was shielded by a ring construct bubble. Even more surprisingly, it wasn't one of his own creation, but a construct created by Green Lantern, Abin Sewer. After cleaning up the collision and getting the people to safety, Kyle and Abin have a confab about what's going on. Abin tells Kyle that, yes, he is in fact really most sincerely dead, but for some reason he and numerous other people around the universe are coming back to life. Completely forgetting that he's currently in a relationship with Jenny Lynn Hayden, Cal tries to head off to find out if Alex has returned to the land of living as well. But Adam tells him he needs to take responsibility as Green Lantern and find out just what the heck is going on. Forsaking the possibility of having some resurrected nookie, Cal flies off to recharge his ring, then heads out into deep space, allowing his ring to guide him to this otherworldly disturbance. Eventually, his ring brings him to the source of the strange phenomena, the reconstituted living planet, Mogo. 
Standing on the surface, Cal tries to use this ring to communicate with Mogo, but instead gets introduced to the resurrected Green Lanterns, Kilowog, Tomar 2, Chaseawan, and Dara, the Green Lantern who committed suicide back in issue number 56. The Lanterns accuse Kyle of killing them by not warning them about Hal's return to the dark side when he traveled back in time. Kyle pleads his case to the Lanterns, but after he gets a blast of dark energy to the back, he realizes that his foes aren't the Lanterns, but the Lord of the Unliving, Necron. Peering out from a ribbon space, the Crypt Keeper wannabe commands the Risen Lanterns to kill Kyle in order to further his plan of ruling the universe. Taking the fight to Necron, Kyle enters the rift and is treated to a Thomas DJ. Tale of how Krona opened this rift, which Necron is peering through. However, due to the Guardians and the Geo Core, he was once again trapped in this alternate dimension. But with the destruction of Kyle, he will be able to finally leave this plane of existence and take over the universe. Finished listening to the monologue, Kyle slips out of Necron's clutches and heads back to our universe and engages the Undead Lanterns in some pre-Blackest Night Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland 2011, all rights reserved. Kyle was able to dispatch all the Dead Lanterns, with a little assist from Mogo, and after finishing them off, and finding out that Necron really didn't plan this out as well as he only resurrected about five Green Lanterns, Kyle watches the rift in space close shut, trapping Necron once again. Crisis averted, Kyle heads back to Earth once again to place a ring construct Rose at the gravesite of his first love, Alex DeWitt. Okay, let me think about this a little bit. I could have sworn I had read something like this before. It's on the tip of my tongue. Green Lanterns coming back from the dead. A big bad who's eventually revealed to be Necron. Cal having to kill members of the core. Or should I perhaps call them the corpse? <laughs> because you add an E onto core and you get you get the picture. Yeah, this is Blackest Night, reduced to a single annual, and it's all right. Stephen Vance, who's the writer for this book, was also the writer for The Adventures of the DC Universe title, which essentially was the precursor to the Justice League and Justice League Unlimited cartoons. He's got a pretty good handle on the character of Kyle, and the story isn't bad, but it just feels really padded. Unlike the Elseworlds annual that Michael Bradley and I felt could have had another 10 pages added to it to flesh things out, this one could have easily had 10 pages taken away from it and cut away to make it a tighter story. The artwork by Lim, Hazelwood, and DeMulder is also really good, and that would be expected, which is nice for an annual, which again usually doesn't rate the sort of top talent like this doing the books. Overall, not amazing, but... <laughs> Very, very obvious that someone pulled a lot of this to make Blackest Night, but it's definitely not Bloodlines level of annual, so that's always a good thing. But moving on to specific notes of the book, the cover is done by Bernie Wrightson, the co-creator of Swamp Thing and artist of horror titles since the 1970s, and the cover does not fail to impress. The veiny, sinewy bodies of both Kilowog and Tomar 2 are really more frightening than they are in the book, and 
Even Kyle looks pretty good as well. It should be mentioned that Bernie Wrightson also did all of the covers for this year's annuals, and I think there were like eight of them, including JLA, Superman, Batman, The Flash, Martian Manhunter, Wonder Woman, and I'm trying to remember there was a couple more, but uh, there weren't as many annuals this time out, but Wrightson did all the covers for them, and it all has this really, really dynamic sort of house of horror, house of mystery type vibe. It completely works for the book. Page one, I kind of joked about it in my synopsis, but having the cloud formation in the background as Kyle is flying in the foreground of him and Alex sort of making out is just kind of weird. You know, I know California is known for its weird weather, but nothing like this. I wonder if this would cause Al Roker to get kind of disturbed. Let's hope. Page 4, it mentions that this story is taking place during the Emerald Knight storyline that was going on between issues 100 and 106, where Hal was actually in the present from the past, and Kyle was kind of, well, not being mopey, but just being sort of, well, no, maybe being mopey is the best description of it, because he kind of felt slighted because Hal was accepted by the League, so... This, is, I guess, is one of these one-off tales where Kyle's having to deal with him being the secondary Green Lantern, in his opinion only. Page 5, I skimmed over the rescue scene in my synopsis, and I also skimmed over Kyle floating through space in my synopsis as well, but the art in both places really sells it, uh, especially on page 5 here, where Kyle is walking out of the fiery crash with the little girl in his arms, and then the mom who he's rescued just grabs Kyle and the daughter and hugs him for all he's worth. It it sells the emotion, it sells the the drama and the heroism that Kyle is portraying here, and it really works. Like I said, Ron Lim is a good match for a Green Lantern title, and I would have liked to have seen what uh, possibly... Well, I would, I would like to see more of the Ron Lim, Ron Mars group working together on Green Lantern, but Steve Vance does a, a good enough job, so I can't complain about it. Page 14, we find out that Moko was destroyed and came back, so that'll never happen again. Oh, oh wait, it has. Eh, eh, there you go. Then on page 16, you get the Green Lantern corpses crawling up the ground. <laughs> yeah, that'll never happen again. Oh, wait, I'm sorry, it has. Page 18, this is just a nitpicky note, but in my copy of the comic, this page is num misnumbered. It's page 19, but... That's not the big issue. The actual note they have for this page is it's nice to see it's nice to see the character of Dara back, since she could have easily been forgotten from an early issue in Kyle's run. If you remember, I think it was issue fifty six where Kyle had went off into space after fighting. He had initially fought Mongol, and then he uh, had the run in with Major Force, which led to Alex's death, and he encountered this. Green Lantern, or this ex-Green Lantern, who tried to steal his ring, and it's a one-off character that really didn't show up anywhere else other than this, so it's nice that they related this character to the story, simply because this character probably had a big emotional impact on Kyle as a character. Page 19, Necron as an enemy wanting to take over the universe by resurrection of the dead heroes and having them attacking living? <laughs> That'll never happen again. Oh. Oh, wait, it already has. 
page 22, the art of Kyle going to Necron's dimension is really kind of trippy with the backgrounds having a very Steve Ditko-esque sort of feel with maybe a little bit of Kirby crackle going on around there. But Kyle's actual image is really distorted with his fingers, very plastic man-like. In fact, in fact, his face has very plastic man-type look. So it's it's a nice way to show him traversing these interdimensional spaces and giving a sort of wonky feel to them. I like it. And then moving on to page 26, a Green Lantern having to kill reanimated heroes. <laughs> That'll never. Then moving on past the fight scene with Kyle and the rest of the Lanterns, it's kind of ambiguous. Mogo seems to collapse in on itself, crushing Kilowog as the last Lantern, but did Kyle do that, or did Mogo himself do that, or was Mogo even alive? What really happened? Could Necron resurrect Mogo? I, I don't know. It's just, it's not really specifically stated here, so it, it leaves me a bit confused as to what's going on. Then on the next page, page thirty-six, not only do you get the realization that Necron's plan was pretty shoddy, as he only resurrected about five Green Lanterns to take on Kyle, but also the whole revival of Green Lanterns wasn't his thing. There was some other force in the universe that was doing this, and I've got to assume that in the other annuals, somewhere in there, you would have found out who this force or what this force was. And then finally we get the page 38 where Kyle goes and lays a ring construct rose at the tombstone balance. <laughs> That's never happened before. <laughs> oh wait, it totally has. Yeah, I can't say originality was the thing that worked in this book. There were a lot of things that would eventually be picked up and used for Blackest Night, and there was finally the trope of Kyle coming to Alex's tomb and saying his goodbyes for, like, the fourth or fifth time in the series. So, eh, there have been worse annuals out there. And speaking of worse annuals out there, come back next time, where we're going to be tackling... <sighs> Green Lantern Annual number 8, which is part of the J.L. Ape storyline. I haven't read it yet. I don't know what it's about, but I haven't heard good things about it. Hopefully we'll be getting something better, though, in Green Lantern number 120, where it looks like Kyle's going to be figuring out just who in the heck that assassin is who's trying to gun down Radu. But both that and... JLA with Green Lantern will be the things we're covering next time. I wouldn't be surprised if he passed on it. I'd probably pass on it too. But maybe I can make the best of it. So why not come back next time for another episode of Just One of the Guys and listen to me suffer through the annual. It'll always be good. Until then, hope you guys have a good weekend. We'll catch you later. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. 
All spam bots are willing to be welcome too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two, and you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonsicore contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast. The opening music for today's show was Spirits in the Material World by The Police. Off their album... Ironically enough, Ghost in the Machine. Probably not ironically. Stephen Lacey hates when I do that. Anywho, this is an excellent song, and you would be wise to go out and purchase it. And you would be even wiser to go out and purchase it by using the link at twotruefreaks.com. Whenever you go to twotruefreaks.com and click the Amazon link in the upper left-hand corner of the homepage, you'll be transported to Amazon.com where you can buy the MP3, buy the CD, or perhaps even buy the record album of it, all at an incredibly low price. Plus, anytime you use the Amazon link at twotruefreaks.com, a little bit of money gets kicked back to the website, and it doesn't cost you anything else, so win-win for both parties. So whenever you're thinking about buying music, electronics, games, pretty much anything that a modern nerd would love, make sure you use Amazon.com and make sure you use the link at twotruefreaks.com.